together. I'd ask that you take your Bibles and open to the book of Exodus this morning. We're in a series that we've entitled A Set in Stone, looking at God's uh, ten holy standards of living and how he has called us to live according to those. And we come to commandment number seven, the commandment that forbids the committing of adultery. And uh, we want to talk about that this morning. And, uh, and because of that reason, and uh, as I shared in the email and in the information you got, uh, we recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training up in righteousness. But we also recognize as elders and leaders of the church that not everything is beneficial uh, for all hearers. And so that's why we've dismissed up to junior high um, so that they um, can learn from their mom and dads. And I'm going to charge you as parents uh, that that is your duty as parents to walk through some of these more sensitive uh, subject matters that uh, we're going to address. It was once brought up in a Sunday school class, uh, what, the question, what is adultery? by a Sunday school teacher. And the kids looked at each other and never heard it before. And little Charlie rose his hand, not quite sure, but he took a a real chance and uh, said to his teacher, Mrs. Johnson, the sin of adultery is the sin of growing old. (laughs) So if any of the kids ask, what did you talk about in uh, the service today? And you don't have an answer or you're not quite sure you want to get into that subject matter on a beautiful Sunday uh, afternoon, it is the sin of growing old. And that's why young kids don't need to hear about it. So that is the sin of adultery. Gosh, I wish that that was the sin that we were talking about this morning. Uh, I went to each of the elders with my hand on my belly as I was walking through the service and said, I'm really not feeling really well today. I'm going to ask, you know, you guys are supposed to be ready to be able to preach in season and out of season. Who's going to step up to the plate and preach this message this morning? But we deal with a very sensitive issue this morning. And as we have looked at these Ten Commandments, I'll tell you, it has been a gauntlet for me, not as just a preacher, but as a Christian. I am blown away at God's holy standard that he places on us. I don't know how the Jewish people, when the law was given, were able to even uh, live under this law. And of course we know that the law wasn't uh, something that was to be attained in its fulfillment, but it was to be a mirror to our sinfulness. We were never going to attain all of the law and its requirements, and that is of course why the law and the prophets always pointed to Jesus. And so we're going to address this issue today, one that without Jesus, and hear me out, without Jesus, you and I will never conquer. Without Jesus in our life, you and I will fall to the sin surrounding this issue of adultery, whether through our bodies or through our hearts and minds, we will fall over and over again without the power of Jesus. And so as we sang this morning, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus because Jesus is the one who is able to set us free from this. Now, just a couple things as we get into this this morning, as we explore this sensitive subject matter. I want to tell you, I have no desire, and I see it a lot in churches, and I hear it a lot in preachers. There's something odd when a preacher gets to talk on the subject of sex that he becomes a junior higher, that the word sex, he wants to say it as much as possible. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. I have no desire to push any envelopes this morning. I have no desire to be uh, all kinds of cute and clever with my ideas this morning, but I will tell you, the church needs to hear a message with regards to our sexuality. Sexuality has run amok. I was so thankful for one of our senior saints, uh, uh, Betty Shimon, 
all of us, I want to say she's 47, I believe now, right, Betty? You're 47? And she came in and she said, she said, this is a message that needs to be preached. And so I got the permission of one of our older ladies in the crowd, and you know what she said? I hope the church is listening this morning. It's important that we talk about this because all Scripture is God-breathing. Because God's Word addresses this, I want to speak bluntly. I want to be able to address it honestly. I do so not to try to, uh, again, be clever or fun or cute, but I also want to speak with balance because the Bible speaks that when we fall to this sin, we are lawbreakers. And when we fall to this sin, uh, we fall into the dirtiness and the defilement that the devil longs us to live in. But as we're learning and as we've heard on the streets of Bangkok, there is redemption for lawbreakers when it comes to the seventh command. And all of us, if we look inside of who we are, all of us will see that we have fallen short of God's glory with regards to this issue. And so I speak to you not as one who has been completely victorious. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I have fallen in this area more than I would ever want to admit. And so as one sinner talking to a group of sinners... I humbly place this before you. So let's look at this seventh command. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of this uh, passage. It's only five words, and then we'll ask for God's blessing on our time. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. From the fingertips of God onto stone, God utters these words. You shall not commit Adultery. I want you to look at the person next to you, and if there's anything that we do today, encourage one another with this command. Turn to the person next to you and say to them, you shall not commit adultery. I just saw one of the women in the church do this to their husband, <laughs> which I will remind you Wives that say that to your husbands, verse 13 reminds us, you shall not murder. <laughs> let's, go to God. let's go to God in prayer. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. I thank you that your word speaks so clearly on a subject matter that seems to be so misguided in the world that we live in. Lord, we need your word this morning. We are fallen people, and we are consuming at levels far beyond what you intended for your people to, to consume. Levels of sexuality and images and messages that are unfit for us as believers. And so, Lord, as we look at this subject matter, oh, Father, that we would open our hearts to hear what you have to say and that we would do something about it, that we would change the direction that we're heading in so that we might find victory, and Lord, that we might find blessing in this gift of sex that you have given in its proper place and in its proper time. Lord, speak through me that everything I say and do, Lord, will challenge the hearts of every person, and Lord, that nothing I say will be of offense, Lord, but that it will be from you and you alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want to deal under the subject matter of getting it right, God's message to a culture gone wild. In 1631, the printers of one edition of the King James Bible were fined 300 pounds by Archbishop Laud, the equivalent of an entire life's earnings. 
Now, what would their crime have been? Their crime as editors of the Bible or the biblical text, the loss of a life's wages was based on them omitting one word from all of Scripture. Just one word. Think about it. You make one mistake, one word out of this entire Bible. You blow that one word, and as a result of that, you lose your entire life's earnings for that one mistake. What one word did they omit? And why was it such an outcry as a result of it? How bad could missing one word really be? Well, it's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Look at your text this morning. And what in that 1631 edition read was, you shall commit adultery. You shall commit adultery. As a result of that, the 1631 King James Bible edition came to be known as the Wicked Bible. Can I tell you this morning that far too many in our world today and far too many in our churches today, whether they know it or not, have committed themselves to that edition of the Bible. While God's word is plainly clear on the subject matter of sexuality, we have come to the point in our world today that we think what God has done is because he's given us these feelings, he's given us these emotions, he's given us this powerful um, thing inside of us called our sexuality, that we now are to use it with reckless abandonment. And as a result of that, we run into all kinds of issues, pains, and struggles. We live in a world that's gone wild, and it seems more now than ever before. And so the words of the seventh commandment ring out to us, and it would do us well to hear them this morning. Because at the very heart of the seventh commandment is the call to make sure at all costs that we keep the covenant of marriage pure. The issue of adultery, of course, is the breaking of the covenant of marriage where one of the spouses leaves or betrays the trust and confidence and covenant of that marriage to go and to be a part of the intimate relationship with another. But before we understand anything more about that, because some of you will quickly say, hey, I've never done that since the day that I stood in a church before all my friends and family and before the pastor, I made vows and good times and bad sickness and in health, I will remain faithful and I have. And then, and then we get a little tripped up because Jesus says if you look upon a woman or a man lustfully, we've committed adultery. And you're like, well, it's not the same thing. And, and I'll just tell you real quick, you don't need to be a Greek scholar. Yes, it is the same thing. While the consequences may be different, when we fall to that issue of lust, we fall just as we would if we committed the bodily act. But within the commandments, as we've learned, one of the things that we need to understand as we deal with the rules of understanding these commandments is that God didn't just have 10 rules, okay? So when God addresses each of these 10, what he's addressing is the most extreme uh, part of the law. So when we learned last week that you shall not murder, what he wasn't saying is you can go around and beat up people, you can go around and you can hurt people, what God did was he dealt with the most extreme of the issues and then said, if this is uncalled for, then anything less is also uncalled for. And so murder, anytime we hurt, maim, anytime we abuse, God says it's wrong. And so when we deal with adultery, the reason why adultery comes to the top is because it is the most treasonous act 
that a man can do to his wife and a wife to her husband. But yet, under that heading are all of the sexual issues that come as a result of our sinful pursuits and actions. And so we're going to talk about it as a whole because this commandment deals, first of all, with our relationships, and second of all, it deals with our sexuality. And so we want to look at that subject matter this morning. I want to do it under four headings with the time that I have left. And I want to explore this subject, first of all, by looking at the world and how it is misguided when it comes to sex. The world and how it is misguided when it comes to sex. Once again, within the commandments, we are reminded that God reigns over our lives. I I just keep quoting this because I love this quote from Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, who says, there isn't one square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. You and I are stewards of God's. Everything we have, all that we are, is God's. And so when God says to us that we need to give of our time, talents, treasures, and testimony to the Lord, we can't think that that's all of it. That's just a pithy little statement that allows us to know uh, where we've got to give. But can I tell you something this morning? Your marriage and your family and your spouse, and can I add your own sexual feelings, belong to God. And so God is the one who brings order to it. And so when someone says, I feel uh, like I need to go this way, and it's contrary to what God is saying, God tells us, That while your sinful nature may lead you there, and every part of you inside of you says, I need to go there, God says, your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. It's mine. And so before you think you can just do whatever you want because it makes your body feel good, you have to recognize that God is the owner, and he will render render a response one day on the day of judgment. We need to understand that. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are to glorify God with our bodies, especially in the area of sexuality. But we do so in a world that's been hijacked from God's intentions and purposes to a defiled and devious substitute. And sadly, some here, even in this place, whether you know it or not, have bought into the notion that the world actually knows what it's talking about in regards to sexuality. I want you to show you five areas where the world has no clue of what sexuality is all all about. I want you to notice it's misguided, and we see that when it comes to its commonality. God created from the uh, beginning of time to ordain sex to be something that was to be shared between a husband and wife in the privacy of their time together. But the world has taken that which is supposed to be intimate between a husband and wife, and it has taken it, and now the world uses sex to sell everything from cologne to cars to even cheeseburgers. We live in an oversexed world. We see it on billboards, TVs, we hear it on our radios, and we hear it in our music. We see it in the movies, it's on magazines. And it is flaunted with our clothing. Everywhere we turn, our attention as Christians is drawn to sex. And there's a reason why. Because we learn in the marketing world that sex sells. Human beings can't get enough of it. And sadly, sadly, we even as Christians are doing the buying. We live in an oversex world. What was once something that was private is now something that is said to get your career started in Hollywood. Just put out a sex tape and you'll become famous. What a world that we live in. 
One scholar says that God created sex to be a blessing to us. But instead of eating from the master's bountiful table, we choose to eat out of dumpsters. He says this type of approach lowers us to become brute animals, longing for a moment of satisfaction. We will maim, we will hurt, and even kill if someone keeps us from getting the gratification that we're looking for. We are no different than the dumb beasts of the world. And yet the world says this is what sexuality is all about. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, it is wrong. Number two, we see the cause. Where have we gone wrong? Where did this go so terribly wrong? What has sent us down this downward spiral? Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the New Testament. We've got to get a theological understanding of this, and we have to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 reminds us why we have such a struggle in this arena. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32, reminds us on why this is an issue, reminds us why we're dealing with some of the perversion that we're dealing with today. It reminds us why our computer screens are filled with this kind of nonsense and garbage. Romans chapter 21, and let me just read through 32, and it just gives an indictment on what causes this kind of debauchery. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, neither, uh, nor gave thanks to him. I want you to understand what this is, is this is a worship issue. The reason why we struggle with our sexuality here in this world is because we've blown the vertical issue, and therefore our horizontal issue of relating to one another is completely flawed and broken. And so what Paul says is the reason why we fall to sexuality is because we have not given God his rightful place as being the ruler, the king, and the God of the universe. And when we reduce God to being something that he is not, we are going to find ourselves becoming the king of our own universe, and as a result of that, we will do whatever makes us feel good, whatever we want to go, wherever we feel like we need to go, we will do so without any thought in mind of what God says. Now notice he continues on. So we've given up on God, and he says, because of that, our thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When you turn away from God, you're no longer enlightened. You no longer have uh, the uh, directional uh, signs to a life of godliness and peace and contentment. And so now you're starting to live for yourself, and as a result of that, you start to do foolish things. He goes on, and he says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. We started looking at created things and saying, that's who I'm going to worship. That's what I'm going to praise. And as a result of that, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The world's sexuality is a lie that comes from the devil. And as a result of that, we need to call it what it is. And instead of worshiping and serving created things, we, or we worship those things instead of the creator who is forever to be praised. Now notice, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Uh, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, of course, found in Scripture, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. 
They have therefore become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And I could go on, but I just want to remind you the reason why we are in this place is because we've chosen not to follow God in his commands. And if you do not do that, if you do not stop today and say, God, you're in control, I'm not, then you won't just struggle with commandment number seven, you'll deal with all of the ten. In fact, you will struggle with every word that's written in this book. You've got to, at first glance, at first point, you have to stop and acknowledge that God is the one who's in control. I want you to notice the categories. The categories. The Bible speaks about more than just adultery. When we see the forbidding uh, of adultery, there's far more that goes to it. Of course, adultery in the most strictest sense is the sin of one spouse against the other in the breaking of the marriage covenant by having sexual relations with someone besides their spouse. It's as simple as that. But the Bible also speaks of the word fornication. And the word fornication is any sexual activity between people who aren't married. And so you say, well, I'm not committing adultery because I am not married, and so I don't have to listen to this. Well, I want you to understand, just below adultery is the issue of fornication. And that is the category for you who are not married who are involved in sexual immorality. And so we need to understand that as well. And I would also say that uh, just because you're not married, at some point you will be married. And if you find yourself living in sexual immorality and in fornication now, at some point you have violated already the covenant relationship because your sexuality is to be given to your spouse. And so you've already become an adulterer in that standpoint as well. Of course, the term sexual immorality is talked about numerous times in the New Testament, and it speaks of sinning sexually in the most uh, general of terms. It comes from the Greek word porneia, of course, is where we get the word pornography from, and it speaks of all kinds of unchaste behavior. And so the Bible speaks clearly about that. So there's adultery, there's fornication, there's sexual immorality, and then, of course, there's the issue of lust. While uh, adultery and fornication and sexual uh, immorality are things that are done by the body, lust is done on the inside. And Jesus rearranges in Matthew chapter uh, 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount that just because we don't do it in body, it doesn't keep us from being guilty of all of these things because we do it in the mind and in the heart. And so we have these four words that help us. Now, all of these issues, all of them, adultery, fornication, sexual morality, and lust, all of them consistently from the beginning to the end are frowned upon, not only frowned upon, but commanded against in both the Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, when it's talked about these issues each and every time, it tells us that we are to flee from anything that's associated with these thoughts or actions. But we don't. And as a result of that, all kinds of debauchery forms. I want you to notice the crimes, the crimes that we see. When we deal with this issue of adultery, we need to understand there's a long list of crimes, of grievances that come before our God. Of course, this means that you can't have sex with anyone but your spouse. That's adultery. But what else is under there? Any sexual activity prior to marriage is out under this clause. Homosexuality, which is forbidden both in Leviticus and the passage we just read in Romans, is a sin against God, just like adultery. I'll go on. As ugly and as gross as they are, sexual relations with animals, with children, with more than one person, 
Thinking about others in a sexual way is wrong. Satisfying your own sexual urges on your own is wrong. And I can go on to the debauchery, and all of these are addressed over and over again in the Scriptures. But I will tell you one that addresses the church that, for whatever reason, and we know the reason, but why we struggle with this, is the issue of pornography. Under this heading, us viewing, us looking with our eyes onto a computer screen or a magazine page or onto a book, fantasizing about sexual relations, fantasizing about being close with someone that is supposed to only be when we're only supposed to be close to our spouse, is wrong. And it's something that plagues the church. I have three pages of statistics. I wish I could read them to you, all from reputable sources. But I want you to hear some of these things on why pornography is such a huge issue. You want to know if we're a sexual people? Just look at our internet searches. 2.5 billion emails a day are pornographic in nature. 2.5 billion. 25% of all search engine requests are pornographically related. What that means is that sex, or some derivative of that word, is the number one search for topic on the internet. 67% of men, church-going men, admitted to watching or looking at some pornographic material in the last seven days. 35% of women. So if you think that pornography is simply a guy thing, it's not the case. 20,000 American adults will visit uh, sex sites, not just at one moment in time, but the average amount of time one looks at pornography during the week is three and a half hours. 15% of online porn will develop into sexual behavior that will disrupt their lives. 9.3 million women will access adult websites each month. As a result of that, here, here listen to this, 75% of boys aged 16 to 18 will view pornogra pornographic images this week, 70% of 18 to 24-year-old men, 66% uh, of men in their 20s and 30s will do it, and as a result of that, we've got marriages and families being broken apart. How big is this issue? To give you an idea, uh, half of all hotel guests will order pornographic movies, these films comprise 80% of in-room entertainment revenue and 70% of all revenue by hotels outside of the fee of staying in the room is pornographic in nature. Let me go on. You think it's an issue for us as adults? Beware, parents. The median age for the first time use of pornography for boys is 10 to 12. The median age of girls is 11 to 13. That's when they're seeing it for the very first time. As a result of that, both unbelieving and believing families that were interviewed said that 57% of them see pornography as a major problem within their homes. According to a report in 2008, the revenue of pornography exceeds the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC and all of its affiliates and derivatives CNN and Microsoft's uh, uh, quarterly earnings at a total of 8.2 million, or I'm sorry, billion dollars. Listen to this. The revenue that is gained through the pornographic industry is larger than all combined revenues of every professional football, baseball, and basketball franchise. 
The industry, according to conservative estimates, brings in $57 billion a year, of which $30 billion is seen by people in the United States alone. We have an issue with pornography. And you can say, I don't have a problem, I don't have an issue with it. I'm going to speak very honestly and openly with you. I have three boys that are growing up. And had I had the access, I lived in a Christian home, my dad didn't have anything. We had two channels, we lived out in the country. And they were the boring ones. Had I had the access to that kind of stuff that is on our computers today, I say this without joking around, I would have never left my room as a teenager. And I've got three boys, and I tell you, I am fearful for their souls with regards to this. And as parents, we got to get involved in our kids' lives. Teenagers, this stuff will destroy you. It looks like fun. It sounds like fun. It begins to produce something in us. Brothers and sisters, we have to know this will only bring us to a place called death. The Bible says there's a path that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. Pornography is one of those things that will lead to destruction. The Bible says we cannot live this way. It tells us to walk away, not only walk away, let me bring it, to flee from these things. Notice the consequences. I need to get moving here. The consequences, the world will tell you that you can enjoy free loving. You can have all the sex you want. It's totally natural for you to go from one partner to another because it is the way that you satisfy your needs. But understand, Satan is the great fisherman. And he baits the hook, and he does it so well that we see ourselves longing for something, and it's dangling right before us. It is only a keystroke away. And so we bite into it. And the searing pain that hits our lives when we consume this kind of stuff, because there's a hook, and it's going to drag us where we don't want to go. And where does this kind of life, this kind of sexual morality take us? It takes us down the road of disease. Just a couple statistics, the Center for Disease Control says there are 19 million new sexually transmitted infections that occur each year, 19 million. Among half of them happen to children that are 14 to 21 years of age. We've got a problem. 10,000 teens are going to be infected with an STD today, one every eight seconds. This isn't some church report. This is the Center for Disease Control. What that tells us is now one out of every four sexually active teens have an STD. And one in two sexually active youth will contract an STD by the age of 18. We've got a problem. And this is a consequence that's going to address us. And young people and old people alike, these diseases are ugly. They cause infertility. They cause all kinds of pains and suffering. They are the leading cause of teenage cancer today. It's taking the lives of many. God says this not because he wants to take away our joy, because he knows what a life of sin will lead to. There's even talk now that while AIDS seems to be under control, there is great concern amongst the homosexual population because AIDS is under control that there's a lack of condom use taking place. And as a result of that, they are fearful that there will be a very virulent form of AIDS that will morph and that we'll have the same epidemic that we have. It is their greatest fear that medication won't be able to address that new form. It brings despair. The Bible's clear. It will not go well for you. And it doesn't mean that it just won't go well for you, that the moment you consume this stuff that you'll die. Of course, spiritually that takes place, but your life will not go well. Study after study of the homosexual population tells us that they will live shorter lives, 
and they will be filled with all types of depression and uh, pain. And as a result of that, the suicide rate amongst those who practice homosexuality is tenfold higher than the general population. We've got to understand, God says, don't get into this stuff. Of course, divorce comes when we miss God's path of righteousness in our marriages. We will bring baggage into it and tear our marriages and our families apart. And so we've got to understand this is a problem. Notice the second point this morning, falling to it is going to make us guilty of sin. I don't want to address this for a long time. We, 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 we understand this. But see, there's something about sex that strikes to the very core of who we are. And when we fail in this way, it goes to the depths of who you are. So when we sin sexually, it will affect, first of all, our relationship with our spouse. When I fail in a lot of other ways, Amanda would be able to say, you know what, it's all right, hey, we can move on. But when I fail with regards to sexuality with her, it will cut at the very heart of who she is and her relationship with me. Trust will be broken. Her image will take a huge beating as a result of that. And as a result of that, coldness comes into a marriage that's supposed to be red hot, that is supposed to be so devoted to one another. Instead of cleaving to one another, we are tearing one another apart and we are moving away. It affects our spouse. You say, well, I'm not married yet, so I can do these types of things. I want to tell you something. What are you going to do when you are courting with that nice young lady or that nice young man? And they happen to say, you know, I'm so looking forward to our wedding night. I'm so looking forward to the honeymoon to give myself over to them and the deep despair that will come knowing that you did not wait yourself. All the fear and trepidation that comes to our spouse when we tell them that we weren't faithful in this. We hurt our spouse when we do this. How about ourselves? When we fail sexually, we give the devil a foothold as Christians. We bring reproach upon our testimony uh, as followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18, while all sins are an affront to God, that sexual sin joins us in a way that no other sin does. In fact, we become one in flesh, he says, with the prostitute. And as a result of that, while we are supposed to be filled and we are to be temples of the Holy Spirit, we now make ourselves one with the immorality that we're a part of. We hurt ourselves when we fail at this issue of sex. How about society? As, a fam as the family goes, so goes society. When the family is destroyed by sexual sin, it will lead to all kinds of degradation of a society. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to explain this. We see it all over the place. Every major world uh, empire has struggled with debauchery and it's been the end of itself. Brothers and sisters, I think what we will do is go the way of Rome is that our debauchery will lead us to destruction. We just can't get enough of it. And just like Rome before us, we will fall because we will become so perverted and so involved in this garbage that we won't see our befalling ahead of us. Sexual sin is, can ruin churches. When pastors and leaders fall, and I can't tell you how many churches have fallen to this as a result. Whole institutions, we can only look to Penn State University, can see how a whole university, after hundreds of years of involvement, of doing good, and leading people in the right direction, can collapse when sexual sin becomes rampant and unpunished. Because of this, the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament was death. 
And you can say, how, how could you do that? How barbaric, how uncivilized can I give you words from a man named Doug Wilson who challenges our thinking when he says, certainly an adulterer is worthy of death. Any man or woman who betrays their spouse, their one and only, their own flesh, will betray anyone and anything and cannot be trusted with anything. He goes on to say, adultery is treason to the family and to a society, and God hates it. You see, we just kind of look and smile when we hear the word adultery, but we need to understand this adultery is a great sin before God. The worst thing is that it is a sin against our Savior. Two passages of Scripture remind us of this truth. One is positive and one is negative. When Joseph is having advances, sexual advances by Potiphar's wife brought to him, in Genesis 39.9, his response to Potiphar's wife is the following, how can I do this great, wicked, this great and wicked sin against my God? It wasn't just with him and the girl. It was between him and God. And of course, on the negative side, in Psalm 51, verse 4, we are told that David, after falling to the sin of adultery, says to his God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Brothers and sisters, when we look at things we're not supposed to, when we think about things that we're not supposed to, yeah, we hurt society and we hurt ourselves and we hurt our spouse or our future spouse, but even greater than that, we are in a sinful affront to a holy God and we break fellowship as a result of that. We need to understand the truth of this and so as a result, because of all this garbage, many see sex filled with vice and vulgarities, and they view it as shameful and sinful. But that couldn't be farther from the truth because we see amongst these first two points, the third point, and that is God created sex as a wedding gift, as a wedding gift. Yesterday I was catering a wedding, and one of the tables uh, was designated for all the gifts, boxes, small and big, and of course a basket of envelopes. And we, of course we do this because we want to honor the couple that's getting married. And so we give something that will be of use to them, that will bring benefit and blessing to them. And so we do that. Well, God does the same thing. When we get married, God brings this gift and he sets it at the table before the husband and wife and he says, this will be of use to you. This will create blessing and benefit to you. And so I give this to you as a gift to share with one another. And the gift is sex. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that man is alone and seemingly depressed. Adam seems to be beside himself. There's no one to share life with. And so God's answer, hear me out, God's answer isn't another buddy to share uh, some football time with. God doesn't say, you know what, I'll create a bar so that you can go and hang out and just have a nice cold one. That will take care of your issue. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't give them entertainment. But what God gives them is a wife, a woman, someone who would complete him. And as a result of that, Within that relationship, he gave something that would be used only in that relationship called sex. And there's three, four reasons why. Number one, because sex shows a priority to your spouse. I have some great friends, some guys that I just love spending time with, guys that I enjoy doing guy things with, and as close as, as, I, as I am with them, there's something I don't share with them, Okay? Yeah, that's a good place to laugh. I don't share that with them. And they don't share that with me, okay? 
And so there's something that, that there's a ceiling when it comes to my male companionship that it hits the ceiling and that's it. There's nothing more. And then beyond that, the only one who goes beyond that is Amanda. Because there's something that we share. There's something that we are not shameful of when we are by ourselves that can take place that none of my male friendships and none of ladies, your female companions can accomplish. Sex reminds us that our relationship with our spouse is number one, second only to God. It's number one, and sex is the reminder of that because that is where it is to happen. Number two, it is God's system for procreation. I don't know why he did it. Why didn't he make high fives the way we make babies? You know, high five. Nine months later, baby comes. Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he have us just shake hands and take care of it? Because I believe that he wanted to remind us that what makes a family must take place within a family. Let me say that again. What makes a family has to take place within a family. And so if we want to have children, then the act that brings children is the act that will come from a husband and wife who are together who have the intent on making a family. They're to be fruitful and multiply. How are they to do it? They were to have sex. It's a shared pleasure. This is where pornography is so destructive because it takes sexuality and it makes it an isolated thing instead of being something shared. I want you to know, husbands and wives, young people and old, that our sexuality is not our own. Number one, it is God's, and number two, it's our spouse's. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, write this passage down, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, we are reminded that our bodies are not our own. They are our spouses, and our spouses have authority over it. So before a young person you go and have sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you need to be reminded that your future spouse lays claim to your body and to your sexuality. You better go get permission from them before you engage in that act. Before I think I can go and do whatever what my body makes me want to do, I need to go to Amanda and say, hey, Amanda, are you okay with this? Because my body is not my own. You have authority over it. And so we have two bosses when it comes to our sexuality. Number one, our God, and number two, our spouse. And we need to recognize that because sex is to be something that I give my sexuality to my wife and my wife gives her sexuality to me. It is the gift of intimacy to one another. As a result of this, it creates a spiritual picture. This oneness is seen as a picture of something bigger than just Amanda and Tim, as just husband and wife. In Ephesians 5.32, we are reminded that the sexual union is one that pictures Christ and the church. And what that means is our sexual intimacy must be one that is filled with great sacrifice, great love, great humility, great respect, and mutual submission from both the husband and the wife. It is to be one that is to be protected at all costs because it has a great sanctifying work that takes place in the life of the marriage. Finally, as we look at this commandment, we need to see that the Bible has clear guidelines for sexual purity. It has clear guidelines for sexual, sexual purity. While the world is misguided, the Bible is clear. Aren't you glad the Bible is clear on this? That we can't just, we don't look to this holy writing and say, man, I wish God had spoken on this. We don't know what to do. We have the words. Now the question is, are we going to live it? And so we are told, the Bible's clear, that sexuality is a gift from God to be viewed and to be enjoyed by a husband and wife. God dedicated a whole book of the Bible to it. It's called the Song of Solomon. 
If you think that God made this thing dirty, it's not. The only time that it's dirty is when we take it outside of the confines of a loving and wedded family. C.S. Lewis once said that sex is a lot like fire. When in its proper place, like the fireplace, it is able to be enjoyed and brings great satisfaction and blessing to all. But when it is out of place, it will only lead to destruction and death. God has given sex to be enjoyed, but in its proper time and proper parameters, and the Bible speaks clearly to that. So we see that we need to address this strategically. I've just got a couple more minutes, and let's knock this thing out. There are five biblical directives. How do we strategically deal with this issue of living out this command? Write these down very quickly. Number one, when temptation comes, run. Over and over again, we are called to flee sexual immorality. And so when temptation comes, and it will, we are to run. That word flee is the Greek word where we get the English word fugitive. We are to run like fugitives. Run for our lives when sexual temptation comes. Read Proverbs chapter 6 and 7 and see how quickly sexual sin can grab us. And so we're told to run. Whatever causes you to sin, write this down. Whatever causes you to sin, remove it. Matthew 5, 29 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It'd be better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Your computer causes you to sin, throw it out. Your TV and cable causing you to sin, get rid of it. Romance novels, get rid of them. A relationship that you have, get it out of your life. Remove whatever it is because it would be better that you don't have that one thing than for you to lose your life and your family and your soul as a result of it. How about when you fall? When you fall, the biblical word for us is to repent. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you have fallen to sexual sin, there is good news for lawbreakers. Jesus Christ can cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Repent. Seek his forgiveness. Knowing that it will happen again. Knowing that it will happen again, resolve. How does a young man keep his way pure? How does a young woman keep, his way, keep their way pure? How does an old person keep their way pure? By devoting themselves to the word of God. We fall to sexual sins because we're not ready for it. We need to be ready for the battle and resolve what we are going to do. And then finally, feeling like a failure? Remember. Therefore, there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there's a sexual failure in your past, remember you now are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. Practically, I've got a word for those two, two groups, those who are waiting and those who are wedded. Number one, to those who are waiting, if you're a young person, if you're single, I have one word for you. It's an illustration. One of the greatest inventions known to man is the invention of superglue. Every teenager and every young person hear me out. Superglue is a great invention. It takes two things and it bonds it together, right? And once superglue works, man, it works. Sex is superglue for a husband and wife. It bonds you together. Here's the problem, young people. When you take that superglue of sex and start bonding it to the wrong things, you can't break that apart without great pain and suffering taking place. 
Have you ever tried to use super glue and it get all over your hand? It makes a mess. Sex outside of marriage is an utter mess. It bonds things together, and when you start to try to rip those things apart, your life becomes undone. And so when your boyfriend says, hey, let's, let's have sex, just say, my pastor talked about super glue. Let's talk about that, bucko. If your girlfriend says, hey, it's all right, it feels good, let's do it, let's be reminded that superglue is a mess when it bonds things together that it's not. It is a word picture for us to know and understand. And so you who are clever are asking the question, well, how far is too far? If you're asking that question, you've gone too far already. Let me say that again. Young person, person that's courting and dating, if you want to know how far is too far, if you're asking that question, you've gone too far already. But I will tell you, if it involves anything that has to do with anything sexual, you've gone too far as well. I just want to make that abundantly clear. And so what you need to do, we've got youth groups, we've got small groups. Get involved. Stay busy so that you can be a part of it. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to release you, and then I've got two minutes of words for those who are wedded. Father God, I bring before you those who are single, those who are waiting for their marriage. And Lord, I pray that you would allow them to honor you with their bodies, to glorify you with their sexuality. Lord, I know, especially for our young people, their hormones are going a mile a minute. I remember those days, Lord, and I remember the frustration and the struggle and the urges that took place, Lord, and I pray that you would use your word and godly parents and a godly church to encourage them and to hold them high in prayer and to lift up their names specifically so that they will have the power by the Holy Spirit to flee sexual immorality. Lord, I pray that those teenagers and young people who have fallen in these areas, that, Lord, they would not see themselves as anything more than simply a sinner who needs to be once again blessed by your grace. And so, Lord, I pray that they would flee it, and when they fall, Lord, that they would be quick to confess it and to seek restoration and reconciliation with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.